Hello and welcome to the 46th CMS Pensions Lawcast. My name is Maria Rodier and I'm a partner in the CMS Pensions team. I'm joined on this Lawcast by Amanda Chammings, who is a senior associate in our team, and together we're going to take a look at the options available to trustees when considering the legal aspects of a residual risks transaction. To start with, I'll cover briefly what we mean by residual risks. And then we're going to split this lawcast into three main sections. Firstly, we're going to look at the traditional approach to a residual risk due diligence exercise. Secondly, we'll look at what we call a vendor due diligence report. And then we'll explain our insurer collective report. Finally, we'll draw the lawcast to a conclusion by highlighting some of the other aspects that trustees will need to consider when thinking about a residual risks transaction. So what is a residual risk transaction? Well, residual risk is relevant in the context of a buy-in or a buy-out. It's an additional level of cover that trustees may be able to purchase from an insurer in order to protect themselves against risks arising in the future. Things such as missing beneficiaries, data errors and benefit errors, just to name a few. This type of cover may also be referred to as all risks. However, it's key to note from the outset that the trustee will never be covered against all risks in the scheme. Insurers will have a standard list of exclusions from the cover and due diligence on the scheme will also need to be carried out, which can often result in an additional exclusions being added to that cover. Residual risk transactions have become much more popular in recent years. Historically, residual risk protection would only have been available to larger schemes. However, we are now seeing trustees request the cover on much smaller schemes as part of their standard requests for contractual terms at the point of buy-in. In fact, by way of example, we have seen this requested on a scheme with assets as little as 100 million. The way in which the cover is requested may also vary. Some schemes will want to complete the required due diligence work prior to buy-in and pay the relevant premium with cover incepting either at signing or following the initial data cleanse period. Whereas other trustees may simply include an option to request residual risk cover at a later date, usually just prior to buy-out. In those circumstances, it would be typical for the relevant work to be carried out at that point in time and the additional premium due then too. As such, it's important for trustees to take a step back prior to making a request for residual risks to determine whether residual risks cover is really the protection they need, and if so, when they would like it to incept and what risks they would like to be covered. Residual risk cover generally costs around 0.5 to 1% of premium, so it's important to look at the protections the trustees already have or may have in the future and consider whether residual risk cover will offer them actual value for money. For example, trustees may already benefit from an indemnity under the scheme rules, which the sponsor may be willing to stand by post buyout. If the scheme has a strong sponsor, then the trustees may feel comfortable relying on the deed of indemnity rather than seeking additional protection at an additional cost. Runoff insurance may also be another option for the trustees to consider and can often be less expensive than residual risks cover. In particular, the combination of these protections alongside standard statutory discharges may mean that residual risk cover is not deemed necessary for certain trustees, particularly following a cost benefit analysis. Another relevant factor will be if there is, the scheme has a surplus and who has control of that surplus or if the sponsor will be required to pay the extra premium. So once the trustees have considered the extra protections that they will need, and also importantly, the timing of any residual risk cover, they will then need to consider how best to approach the legal aspects of the transaction. Amanda is now going to 
outline what type of work can be expected from a residual risk transaction and what we mean firstly by the traditional approach. Thanks Maria. So I'm first going to set out brief details of the level of work that may be required for a residual risk transaction. These exercises often take up a great deal of time and can be expensive, but it's clear that preparation is key if the trustees are considering a residual risk transaction. As a starting point, and in line with any scheme approaching the buy-in market, trustees and their advisors will need to prepare a benefit specification. This is a document setting out all the benefits payable under the scheme, and as such, this exercise involves reviewing the scheme's historic governing documentation and requires input from all trustee advisors to ensure that the benefits being administered by the scheme in practice reflect those that members are legally entitled to. Inevitably, during this exercise, issues will arise that need to be resolved, and ideally, this would be done before the trustees approach the market. If the trustees are not intending to participate in a residual risk transaction, insurers will generally rely on the warranties and disclosures that the trustees provide under the buying contract, rather than reviewing all the historic scheme documentation. However, if an insurer is to take on a higher level of risk through the provision of residual risk cover, it will need to be comfortable that the relevant due diligence, both from a legal and data perspective, has been conducted in respect of the scheme. Now, as Maria mentioned, I'm also going to touch on what the traditional approach to residual risks is. Although it's fair to say that there's been a lot of innovation and development in this market over recent years, and this option actually now appears to be less common. So traditionally, trustees and their advisors prepare a benefit specification and then enter into a competitive process to select a buy-in insurer. Once the trustees have chosen an insurer, they enter into an exclusivity period. And at that point, they may also agree a price lock, which is usually valid for a six to eight week period. As such, where the trustees are also looking for residual risk cover, the insurer is required to complete its due diligence within that six to eight week period. This immediately places time pressure on not only negotiating the buying contract, but also completing the due diligence which may include reviewing hundreds of scheme documents and potentially resolving any identified issues within a short period of time. As such, the trustees would need to have a data room available with all the relevant documents at the point of exclusivity, and the insurer's lawyers would review these to ensure that the benefits being provided to members are compliant with the scheme's governing documents. Simultaneously, due diligence will also be carried out on the data. Now, as I mentioned before, these exercises often raise a number of questions, and therefore there'll be due diligence questionnaires in respect of both the legal and data aspects, which will often require in-depth analysis of certain legal provisions and potentially looking back at historic administrative practices. Therefore, this puts a lot of pressure on the key contacts from the sponsor who work on the pension scheme, the scheme's lawyers, and in particular, the administrators. One of the disadvantages of the traditional approach is therefore the lack of time. There's only a short period of time in that exclusivity window, which means that any issues identified are likely to be resolved before the buying contract is signed. Typically, this means that insurers may look to exclude issues that they uncover. It may be possible for the insurer to include contractual provisions for identified issues to be included in the cover at a later date, if those issues are resolved to the insurer's satisfaction during the data cleanse. But the trustees potentially start off from an unfavourable position. 
Now, this brings us nicely on to one of the alternative approaches to residual risk due diligence, which is what we refer to as the vendor due diligence report. And Maria is now going to talk about this in a bit more detail. Thanks, Amanda. The vendor due diligence report, also known as a VDD report, was an innovation in the market around five or so years ago. This report approaches a residual risk transaction in a similar way to a standard corporate transaction where a buyer would prepare a report for the seller to rely on. Essentially, the VDD report is a report prepared on behalf of the trustees, which can be shared with insurers prior to exclusivity, enable them to provide more accurate quotes, and then maintain the competitive tension in that process. There are two questions to consider here. Firstly, who prepares the report on behalf of the trustees? And secondly, do the insurers still need to complete their own due diligence? So let's look at who prepares the report on behalf of the trustees. Now, most insurers are not comfortable relying on a report prepared by the trustees' incumbent advisors on the basis that they are essentially marking their own homework. Therefore, one approach that is often used is the transaction counsel approach. Trustees retain a separate law firm to prepare the VDD report, which is to be presented to the insurers. There are a number of advantages to this approach. Firstly, the VDD report is produced prior to going to market, which means that the time pressure experienced under a traditional due diligence approach is not applicable. As there is more time to produce the report, there is also more time to investigate and hopefully resolve any issues prior to sharing the report with the insurer. And this means that trustees can present their schemes in the most favourable light. Generally, it also means that trustees are in a better position to negotiate more meaningful cover because they have the time to do so. Depending on the nature of the transaction and the insurer involved, trustees may find that insurers still want to carry out some level of due diligence on their own during the exclusivity period. However, this is generally reduced and a much more streamlined process as the trustees have already got their documents and data ready and investigated any areas of concern. Finally, it's also worth noting that the VDD report is produced on behalf of the trustee and prior to going to market, it's the trustee or potentially a sponsor that is responsible for meeting the costs of the report. Okay, so Amanda is now going to talk to us about the third option I mentioned, which is the insurer side report, which we call our ICR report. Thanks, Maria. Now, as Maria mentioned, there's been a further innovation in the residual risk market, which is an insurer side report, which we refer to as the insurer collective report. If an insurer collective report is being used for a transaction, then the law firm producing the report would act for all insurers who are participating in the bidding process. They would then undertake due diligence on the relevant schemes documents and liaise with the trustees advisors to further understand any identified issues. The insurers then all receive a copy of the same report, but which is tailored towards insurers rather than the trustee. There are a couple of advantages to this approach. Firstly, the insurer collective report may identify areas of risk. However, insurers do not owe a fiduciary duty to members and therefore they may be able to take a much more pragmatic approach and price the risk into the transaction rather than requiring the trustees to complete additional due diligence or potentially even a rectification exercise. Secondly, if an insurer is selected, they're able to rely on the report and they know that it's been carried out by a law firm acting on their behalf. Therefore, they will not generally need to carry out additional due diligence on the work that has already been completed. Of course, once they've been granted exclusivity, they, stay, they still may wish to take a deeper dive into certain issues. However, the fact that this report is prepared prior to exclusivity being granted means the competitive tension is maintained throughout the process. 
Finally, the insurer collective report is generally paid for by the winning insurer. This approach may be more palatable to certain sponsors of schemes who would prefer not to pay a large sum up front for a report. Albeit, if the transaction does not go ahead, then usually the sponsor is responsible for picking up the costs. It's worth noting that this approach still includes a lot of time pressure, as the report will usually be pulled together whilst the insurers are considering their round one pricing, and it'll include questions from all the participating insurers. Therefore, it's still really important for trustees to have all their documents easily accessible in a data room and to ensure that their advisors have the resource to deal with the detailed questions that will be raised during that period. Now, just before we finish, we also wanted to highlight a couple of other important points for trustees to be aware of if they're considering a residual risk transaction. Firstly, as mentioned at the outset, preparation really is key here. So ensuring that the governing scheme documents are available and also easily accessible in a data room, but also making sure that advisors are given enough lead in time. In particular, these exercises can require a great deal of input from scheme administrators. Therefore, it's important to line up your scheme administrators in advance to ensure that they've got enough resource to be able to respond to the in-depth queries in short timescales. In addition, as the de-risking market is very active at the moment and there's limited resource from the insurers, preparation can often lead to an increased engagement from insurers as they'll have less work to do in order to be able to provide an accurate quote. Now that was a bit of a whistle-stop tour of the three approaches to the legal side of a residual risk transaction, but if you've got any questions then we'd be more than happy to answer them and you'll find our contact details at the end of this lawcast. Maria, I'll just pass over to you for some closing remarks. Thanks, Amanda. All that's left for me to say now is thank you for joining us for this lawcast. We hope you found it interesting and useful. We hope that you'll join us again for the next in the series. Uh, the next one will actually be on the new DB funding code. Thank you for listening.